Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today. This one I was really looking forward to, and I've been looking forward to it for a while as we tried to set this one up with Daniel Francis about his new book, Becoming Vancouver, A History. This is a book that, yes, it is about one city in the country, but it's about larger themes that certainly play out in Vancouver, but exist everywhere, I think, across the country when you're talking about natural resources versus protecting the environment, uh, racial tensions, and then real estate issues, which are very prominent in Vancouver. But as we've seen across the country over the last year and a half, uh, concerns about a potential bubble exist across the country. So there's a lot of uh, themes that are specific to Vancouver, but certainly exist elsewhere in the country. And as I said to Daniel in the show, I've grew up in Central Canada. I currently live in Central Canada. I've spent time in Western Canada, a little bit of time in Vancouver in my life, and I really enjoyed this book. I got a lot out of it. Uh, and so I can imagine anyone who lives out there who has spent a lot of time in Vancouver would certainly appreciate a lot of the work that's done in the book. And and again, as, as an outsider to the city, I very much enjoyed going through it as well. Which shouldn't be surprising, I guess, that uh, Daniel is well renowned historian, very long career, successful career. So it, it shouldn't surprise anybody that this book is, is very, very good. And what struck me about it too, in talking to him, again, not being from out there, I, there he, he talks about how there isn't a lot of public memory in the city, that the city's youth, in a sense, has almost hurt this sense of history around the city. And, and the book is a, a one way to help reclaim or to publicize uh, to get more people aware of the city's history. And I think it does a very, very good job of that. So let's get right into my chat with Daniel Francis. All right. And Daniel Francis joins me now from Vancouver. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, thank you for joining me. Again, the book is Becoming Vancouver, A History. And I wanted to start, Daniel, by talking about something that you wrote in the intro that really piqued my interest because it's something that uh, maybe maybe we'll disagree on actually, and it it speaks to your motivation of why you wanted to write the book. Uh, you talk about how within Vancouver there's a lot of of rebranding of the city. There's a lot of buildings that are here one day, gone the next day, and the city is is physically changing. And you write that you are. Uh, unsympathetic, uh, which I love that that word choice there, uh, to this exercise in urban memory loss. And a lot of people who've listened to the show for a while will know that uh, I'm one who, you know, feels that buildings have a lifespan and that once a building is no longer useful, I, I don't like the whole, I, I'm not all in on heritage preservation, what they're doing to Parliament Hill, for instance, I, I don't fully understand it. So uh, could you just maybe explain how that, what, what you're seeing around the city, that urban memory loss, why that is so important to you to uh, preserve that in the book form and how dangerous do you think it is for public memory when the built heritage does get changed out uh, the way you describe in the intro? Um, I think we're not as much at odds as you, as you suggest. Okay. <laughs> um, 
I'm not really against all this building. What I what I'm what I was worried about is that the disappearance or the transformation of the physical city, its effect on public memory. And okay. I was I was concerned that the memory was disappearing, and that's a bad thing. Uh, not so much uh, the buildings, although you know, as much as the next person, I like the fact that uh, some, at least, of our old buildings and old neighborhoods are preserved. Um, I was born here in back in the 40s and raised in Vancouver, so I like to go to the parts of the city that remind me of uh, my own experiences there. But basically, uh, the issue was um, the disappearance of the memory of the city and the and the kind of feeling that that was okay, that uh, Vancouver doesn't have a history. Hmm. So how do you think the the best way to do that is within a city to preserve that public memory? Obviously, this book is part of that, as you you note in the intro. But what sort of things do you find effective in preserving a public memory of a city? Because obviously that's that's key to what you're doing here, part of the motivation. But it does seem to be a source of tension, which is certainly a theme in the book when you talk about things like statues and, and monuments. So, so just for sort of what, what, what sort of strategies do you find to be the most effective in, in preserving that memory? Gee, that's a big question and a good one, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I've been involved, uh, I live in North Vancouver now, and, and I've been involved with the, uh, with the History Museum here and the construction of a new one, which by coincidence just happens to open next week. So museums have been a little bit of a part of my life, and I think that's obviously um, an an important way of preserving the community memory. I've sort of been involved in the in the heritage movement, but I'm I'm maybe a bit like you. I'm I'm a little suspicious of of the preservation of the buildings because of the um, because of the nature of most of the buildings that are preserved. You know the the idea of of, of palatial homes being somehow more important than other kinds of homes. Right. And so they should be preserved. That kind of thing There's a built-in bias, I think, uh, to the heritage movement that I'm never completely uh, confident with and mm. uh, supportive of. So I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm only peripherally involved in that. The larger question about how to preserve the, as you say, the, the business of, of uh, preserving our history th- through building statues to famous people certainly tends to backfire. Yes. So I'm I'm not, I I really would have to think more about that uh, question. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? And certainly uh, there are people all across the country who are struggling with uh, that idea. And one of the reasons is, as you know, there there is some tension. And when you talk about individuals, uh, that can be difficult to address in the contemporary sense. So Let's get into, I would say the major theme of the book, uh, as I went through it, is is tension, that you see tension throughout the city's history. And would you say that that's a fair assessment on my part, that, that what you're identifying throughout is a city that, for as beautiful as it is, and for as, as you know, high ranking it is on, on livability, it is ultimately, when you look at the city now and in the past, it, it's a site of tension for a lot of folks. Yes, definitely. That's the, I guess, the major theme of the book. This idea of the world-class city, the city of glass, which is uh, Douglas Copeland's famous phrase to describe the city, those condo towers that have grown up everywhere, 
there's a tension between that world-class city idea, the people who want to kind of leverage the uh, beautiful location Vancouver has, and people who uh, who are a, somewhat opposed to that, people who want a more livable city, which is the phrase that's emerged in the last few years, a slower pace, uh, more preservation of the past. Um, so these, these two uh, approaches to the city, I think have been at odds since the very beginning and uh, are quite strong nowadays as well. Lately, the well, not so back in the 80s, this term emerged Vancouverism to describe the second approach I mentioned, the more livable city. And mm. uh, for a while there in the 80s, uh, we thought we'd, we'd uh, resolve that tension and we had the, the uh, perfect answer to the livable city. That has proven lately not to be so much the case. So, so these tensions still exist. And for someone like me who lives here in Ottawa, central Canada, I've been to Vancouver a few times and, and enjoyed it. But from afar, it does feel like there's not only the tension there, but th there's a sense sometimes that people in central Canada mock Vancouver for two main reasons, I think. Uh, one is the real estate situation. And we sort of look at it and think it's just it's crazy to fathom. Uh, the prices in Vancouver when we look at it from afar. And the other that we sort of get a chuckle out of is whenever it snows on the rare occasions where it snows uh, and the city shuts down. But, uh, you know, the, the main one, though, is is that, like, how do you explain the city to someone who doesn't live there? Because it does seem like such an outlier from the rest of the country on, one, those, like, important economic things that actually affect people's lives. And two, the more silly, like, you know, so much of this country's culture is based in winter and like surviving the winter, like that imagery that goes along with, you know, growing up skating on ponds and stuff, things that don't happen uh, in Vancouver. Like, so, so how do you explain the city to somebody like me who grew up in central Canada and continues to live in central Canada? Uh, well, I guess I'd have to say the book is the, uh, <laughs> is the attempt to explain it. Uh, but I know that there is this image of Vancouver. Vancouverites delight in it. The idea, the famous cliche about uh, skiing in the morning and sailing in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that generates some uh, slight antipathy towards the place is uh, the smugness of, uh, of the people who live here. Because uh, we delight in this, in our lack of winter in a way. Um, yeah. Although the last few weeks certainly uh, has, has um, dampened any smugness we might have anymore. Right. But, gee, an explanation for the city. I think it, 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 its main thing is that it does have this location that is so beautiful and um, trying to get sort of people to pay attention to the history of the place and the human activity that has gone here as opposed to feeling that we're more than just the mountains and the ocean and so on that surrounds us. I wanted to, I, I hope that... Um, that the book would help people look at the city and its historical experience rather than beyond the city to the uh, natural environment that surrounds it. And, and I will say too, in terms of the, the weather, I was in Vancouver once and it was zero. I lived in Regina for a couple of years. Minus 40 in Regina is a walk in the park compared to zero in Vancouver to me. 
uh, just how damp it is. It was uh, it was an awful experience for me. So you know the the lack of the winter and snow, sure, but the the dampness, uh, I I don't think I could actually get used to. Uh, so I will you know defend the city and I will defend the city in that sense. Yeah, I've lived in Ottawa for 16 years in Montreal, so I I know the eastern winter and I'm glad not to have to experience it. But uh, <laughs> people, you know, these environments I think imprint on one. Uh, oneself and I you know this coastal environment is just imprinted on me yes there is something to be said for not having to shovel and uh, it gets damp here too so uh, uh, but let's talk about the start of the book because I was kind of taken by this too before between the intro and the first chapter you have a section it's called naming names which I very much enjoyed and it goes through a little of the the naming of the city the indigenous presence there and it sort of launches into the first chapter there where where you're talking about the founding of the city so how do you think about the actual start the the beginning of the city the naming of the locations around the city when obviously indigenous peoples have been there for thousands and thousands of years uh, and the idea of vancouver the city, the metropolitan city is relatively new. So, you know, how did you think of incorporating that material into the book and figuring out where to actually start when you talk about this particular piece of land where people have lived for so long? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I wanted the book to be about the history of the city since its beginning in 1886. I didn't feel qualified to, uh, to write much about um, the indigenous history of the place. But I did want readers to be aware of a fairly obvious fact that the area was inhabited by indigenous people, several different groups uh, known today as the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh, that they all had settlements within the bounds of the city, that they were all eradicated from the city subsequently, uh, their presence at least. So I wanted to... um, I wanted to begin, uh, as I say, making the fairly obvious fact that Indigenous people were here. And um, I thought this story about um, August Jack Cazzolino being a main informant on the history of the city to its main uh, archivist, Major Matthews, telling the stories about the communities that were here and so was a nice way to make that point. And then, as as I say, um, after that point is made, indigenous people are included in the story as as they as events evolve. Yeah, it's one of those things where it came up a little during Canada 150 back in 2017 too, distinguishing between the history of the place and then the history of the political entity or the governance of that place. Uh, within sort of the colonial European framework of it. And I think the book uh, does address that very well. I also want to talk about a couple of the themes and other themes that I found within the theme of tension. And the first one that that comes up is the idea of opportunity versus protection. Obviously, anyone who's ever been to Vancouver knows that it it is a beautiful place. I don't think anyone would ever challenge that idea that it's a beautiful location. And it has a lot of resources. There, there's a lot there that uh, people can use to to live and survive and make a lot of money. But at the same time, there's always been this drive to protect the natural landscape. 
So this idea of there's opportunity in the landscape and the resources, but you also want to protect them, uh, that being this source of tension from early on land speculators up until today where we're talking about logging and stuff. So for you, or where's the line drawn in the, the city's history, uh, especially early on there in the, the late 19th century, of people trying to exploit the resources to make a, an economically strong, viable city versus the desire just to protect the stunning landscape that exists? Yeah, certainly in the, in the early years, this desire to exploit, I think, was dominant, although not always so. There were incidents, I described one of the, of the attempt to clear-cut uh, an island that lies in Coal Harbor and the opposition um, from people who wanted to preserve. So there was always a, a preservation movement in the city as well. But I think in the early years, this uh, attempt to, um, to exploit uh, the natural environment and the resources of the area and, and the location, as we've been talking about, was dominant. Certainly, you know, it, it was a logging village originally. And right. logging was the main activity that went on here uh, for a long time and clear cutting uh, and so on. The downtown area and the area that now comprises the city was the first uh, major activity. So resource exploitation has always uh, been a main factor. Uh, but in the early years uh, that you're talking about, I think certainly exploitation was the dominant theme. When did that start to switch or has it, in your opinion, actually started to switch? Because you, I think you associate, again, me from as someone from central Canada is, is a lot of people from Vancouver being more environmentalist, being protectionist of, of the natural resources. I think of the West Coast, particularly Vancouver and, and Victoria as well, as places where the Green Party, for instance, politically is very strong. So I, I associate that part of the country with a strong environmental a sentiment that may be stronger than other parts of the country. So when does that start to emerge and has it necessarily flipped in its entirety to a place where protection is more dominant than the exploitation at this point? No, I don't think it's flipped entirely, but I would say it's part of the, the feeling since the sixties, I think where the, um, the support for growth and development at least uh, was qualified. And there was a big controversy here in the, in the 1960s about the development of the city itself. Um, Post-war, of course, the city uh, had gone through a kind of identity crisis, felt that it was run down, drab, needed to be redeveloped, full of ticky-tacky houses and, uh, and so on, which was quite common uh, continent-wide, I think and urban renewal became a catchphrase. And in Vancouver in the 60s, that took the form of this project to um, pretty much destroy one of the downtown neighborhoods next to Chinatown called Strathcona and uh, rebuild it in, in a modern form. And that was accompanied by plans to uh, drive a freeway right through the middle of Chinatown and Gastown, two of the oldest neighborhoods, um, to drive a freeway right through the center of the city. And these, these projects were both stopped in their tracks by this emergence of a citizens movement hmm. and uh, opposition to City Hall, if you will. And until that time, 
basically City Hall did whatever it wanted to do and uh, was and and was in the grips of this growth philosophy. And so really that period, the late 60s, early 70s, is where a really interesting period politically where things turn around in the city, I think, and, and, a, and a kind of not really anti-growth, but a controlled growth uh, philosophy takes more control in the city. And how much does the protest and change of the 20s, 30s start to foster that switch that we see in the post-war year that you're, years that you're talking about? Because I find that, and I found that part of the book particularly fascinating. One, because my own work, it, it tends to be uh, focused in the interwar years, but the the underlying discontent in the city that you see from a lot of folks, certainly the economic challenges that, that people are facing, is there a line that can be drawn uh, particularly in Vancouver, between that, the, the protest, the civil disobedience on occasion in the interwar years, and then what you're seeing in the 1960s, that protectionist streak that comes on a little stronger? Well, that's an interesting question. I hadn't really uh, drawn that line myself. Um, I think of the protest of the 20s and 30s being mainly labor uh, related to workers' rights. Um, and the situation of uh, workers in the city, and then the depression, of course, and the reaction to that. Mm -hmm. I don't know about it to draw a connection to that, to the 60s, which is more about, as I say, development in the city itself. Right. But certainly there's a, there's a, a long history in the city, almost from the beginning of, of protest in the streets. One of the most interesting things for me to learn about the city was this history of contention that it that it has that things issues were worked out on the street in a way they just aren't anymore Pro, i'm talking about protest marches and jerry mcgear the mayor's famous reading of the riot act in 1935 and and uh and and it was just very very common for people to take to the streets to express their uh political opinions and it's true that while I didn't draw that connection, I can see what you're getting at, that when it comes to the 60s, it happened again. People mobilized, uh, community groups formed uh, in opposition to these big projects that I mentioned. And, it, and there, it, there probably is a connection to be made between those two eras. Yeah, just sort of what institutional memory is there and, and the sort of the people who were there then who were still there in the, the 60s and, and how it all, all plays out. But another part of both of those protests and both of the, the discontent and the, the public challenging of, of the city uh, also has to do with race. You talked about uh, Chinatown and the issues uh, with the freeway. How much has race shaped the city's history, both certainly when you're talking early on and the dispossession of indigenous lands. And then, uh, of course, the city has a very strong connection to the Pacific and to Asia, and there's a strong uh, Asian Canadian community there. How much does race really shape the city's identity? Oh, yeah, very much so. From the beginning, you could say almost that the first uh, public event in Vancouver was a race riot. One year in, in 1887, a mob formed to drive Chinese people out of the city. There were all kinds of laws to exclude uh, Asians from jobs, from neighborhoods, etc. Uh, Chinatown basically 
formed um, as a little enclave of self-protection in a way that uh, Asian residents used. It was definitely a white supremacist community, and this extended to indigenous people as well, who had communities, villages, settlements uh, within the confines of the city, and they were systematically removed from them as the city kind of expanded its way southwards. If, uh, if there were any uh, indigenous communities in the way, they were merely um, eradicated. So um, yes, certainly uh, race has been with the city since the beginning and extended, well, it extends up to day, I, I suppose. Uh, now we pride ourselves in being uh, what the newspaper once called the most Asian city outside of Asia. And um, they, the makeup of the, of the community is, has changed completely. The ethnic makeup, racial makeup uh, has changed completely. But, you know, most of our, so, so many of our shameful episodes, the internment of the Japanese, for instance, the erasure of in, indigenous uh, presence, uh, all of these have to do with race. And it's kind of an issue that the city has been coming to terms with, as, as so many places have in Canada lately, um, in the last little while. But it, it, yeah, it's an, it's a, it continues to be an ongoing issue. Definitely. And certainly we've seen it in the midst of the pandemic, uh, the increase in anti-Asian uh, hate crimes uh, and, and issues there and uh, the, the discriminatory uh, actions that we see. Uh, so certainly I've seen stories out of Vancouver about the increase there. Uh, but it also strikes me that a lot of the city's distinctness culturally comes from, as you say, the, the strong Asian Canadian communities uh, that are there. So does that also permeate the city politically uh, in addition to the cultural elements that exist there? You know, when I was out there, certainly I saw more signs that were not in English or French than I've seen in, I think, any other city uh, in the country. Uh, so, you know, th there's outwardly noticeable things, but is there a, a sense of in terms of whether it's the, the local politics, the local economy, certainly the way the real estate market has, has been influenced by uh, certainly the, at least again, in central Canada, the narrative that gets talked about a lot is uh, Chinese investors who buy into Vancouver uh, as, as being one of the reasons that, that markets are so high. Like just, just how much does that diversity influence overall the city outside of just the, the cultural element? Yeah, I think uh, it's always a part of the conversation about about almost anything. Certainly, one of the things that I always liked about the city was its obvious um, Asian presence. The uh, Chinatown being the most obvious example, but the it's reflected sometimes in the art, the architecture. You, you feel I felt growing up that the that the Asian presence was strong, and but as you're mentioning that's the cultural presence I'm talking about. But n nowadays, it's more the economic uh, presence that one talks about. And, and you can see, uh, since this really happened, which is um, largely since, uh, since Expo 87, um, 86, that uh, this was a, a, the fair, um, a world's fair was, was uh, planned really by the politicians of the time to make Vancouver a showcase and to attract foreign um, investment 
to the place. And it worked probably beyond their wildest dreams. And much of this investment came from uh, Asia. And uh, that led to a kind of resurgence, I think, in a way of uh, tension between the two communities, because it was felt that um, all this Asian investment was what was behind the escalation of home values and so on. And I think, I think it's been proven without a doubt that this influx, sudden influx of offshore cash from the, from the 80s and 90s uh, did play a factor. And uh, there was a feeling that neighborhoods were being destroyed and, and heritage homes were being knocked down and replaced by giant, giant homes and absent, uh, absentee ownership was a problem and so on. So you do see the same old F, uh, racial tension in the city manifesting itself, but it manifests itself, um, as you suggest, in a different way. And I think part of it, too, has to deal with or, or what we should also address is, as you put in the book, that a lot of people note that the city is home to the poorest postal code in the country uh, on the east side and uh, the, the tension that exists there. And certainly the racial tension would contribute to that. The city has been, at least my impression of the way it gets presented, is that the city is sort of at the center of the debate around safe injection sites, as well as the op opioid crisis that currently exists across the country. So how much does the the city and the city's history of the tension that we've talked about, how much of that tension exists in just an equity question too? When we talk about the city's history the, from afar, again, it seems like there's a lot of inequality, visual inequality presence in the city. Is that a modern phenomenon or is that something that can also be traced back to the city's history and development? No, I think it has a pretty long history. Um, you're referring specifically to the downtown east side, which is in a tragic uh, situation today, but began sort of as a the, the problems of inequality and ill health and so on that plague the downtown east side do go back a fair way. It was always, as the city grew, it was always um, a neighborhood where, which attracted um, seasonal workers who came in from coastal logging camps and so on and lived there during the winter. So it was always a place where cheap hotels, bars, and so on were prevalent. But it was also a neighborhood along Hastings Street, East Hastings, that was kind of a, an entertainment district a really vibrant community that people would visit to shop and entertain themselves. And I'm talking now here up until the 1950s. But um, by a combination of circumstances, I think coincidental, the street railway closed down and the main terminal was down there. The uh, ferry from the North Shore closed down and it brought commuters in daily to shop and so on. There were several economic things that happened to the downtown east side in the 50s that, that led to a kind of economic decline and which accentuated its already existing reputation as a, uh, as a kind of, uh, you know, the skid row kind of, this is when the, the language, that kind of language started to be used uh, and applied to the downtown east side. And then um, drugs happened. Heroin, which had always been 
prevalent, but uh, followed by other hard drugs. And then following up, up, up on that, there, were, there have been a succession of health crises, starting with AIDS in the 80s for intravenous use, drug users, and, and then uh, among intra, intravenous drug users themselves, the AIDS epidemic, and now, as you mentioned, this terrible uh, overdose crisis that we have. All of these factors have been focused on the downtown east side, and nobody seems to, um, to be able to do anything about it. So certainly, this is a big sore, if you will, on the identity, uh, the image of the city at the moment. And tragic certainly is the the right word to use when describing uh, sort of the images you see in the the stories of overdoses that that we hear from that part of the city. So I'm That's curious. Right. Now... You, you must you must also mention, I think, the 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 way the community now feels itself about being. A community. I mentioned earlier that that um, uh, when the the political situation kind of shifted in the late 60s and the early 70s to fight those freeway plans and uh, rehabilitation of certain neighborhoods, the plans to rehabilitate certain neighborhoods, and there was definitely a reaction in the downtown Eastside community itself. Certain political parties formed that actively engaged in elections, but also community groups uh, that fought these developments and then went on to be spokespeople for the community there. And suddenly it was felt that it was a kind of a neighborhood and had its own identity. So right. those kinds of, and that work of course continues. So uh, for you mentioned the, um, the safe injection site, which really came out of the work of people in that community itself. So one can't forget the, 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 um, the kind of political dynamism of the community as well. Yeah, I, that's a really good point and, and very well said. Uh, and I completely agree with you there that uh, yeah, you do see that uh, the community, the, the neighborhood sentiment that does uh, th that has grown out uh, of that uh, of the neighborhood. So uh, I, I want to ask uh, as well for anyone who's coming to the book, like how, how do you conceive of the audience for this book? And, you know, again, I, I read it. I've been to the city a couple times. I enjoyed it. Uh, but do, do you or were you, as you were writing it, conscious of maybe a difference of approach from somebody like yourself from the city, grew up there, uh, has lived there uh, most of your life uh, compared to someone from not the city? Like, like just how do you conceive of that audience? And do you expect as readers come to it, Will there? Do you think there will be different reactions based off of your per, uh, an individual's personal connection to the city? Yeah, there may be, but uh, you've identified a difficulty for me when I was writing. <laughs> you know, who was I writing it for? Yeah, uh, there hadn't been a, a a book like this about the city in several decades, um, which was one of the motivations for doing it, of course. But uh, it it was a bit of an issue for me to write a book that would appeal to someone who knew nothing about the city and would also say something new uh, for someone who had lived lives here. I can only hope that I've resolved it, uh, but I guess I have to leave that up to the reader. Yes, <laughs> yes the, the great challenge of writing, right? It's uh, always left up uh, to the reader and you can never quite know exactly how people are going to respond. But again, certainly we've only scratched the surface of what is in the book here in our discussion today. Again, so the title is Becoming Vancouver, A History. Daniel, if people want to pick up the book or, or learn more about you and, and your 
long storied career. Uh, where can they get more info and where would you point them to pick up a copy? I guess uh, any, uh, well, that, that again, like the, the readership, it depends where you are. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose if you don't live in Vancouver, the only way to do it is online. But uh, to find out about me, I have a website, danielfrancis.ca, uh, that you can find out about the other books that I've written. And that's, yeah, that's the best place. All right. Uh, so we'll certainly direct people there and uh, and recommend the book. And as I said, I really just scratched the surface of uh, all that's in the, the book. Uh, and, and again, as someone grew up, lives in central Canada, I very much enjoyed uh, learning more about the city uh, and the themes that you identified. So Daniel, congratulations on the book. And thank you so much for getting up early and spending some time with me today. Well, thank you very much, Sean. I've enjoyed it. So there you have it. My chat with Daniel Francis. And again, the book is Becoming Vancouver, A History. I thank him for his time. Got up a little early out there in Vancouver uh, with the time change. And I certainly appreciate him doing that. Would encourage everybody to check out the book or check out Daniel's other work. As you said over there, danielfrancis.ca. So that will do it for this week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you have not yet, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff. Helps the show grow. Helps other people find out what we're doing. Head on over, of course, too, to activehistory.ca. All of our episodes are under the podcast tab. And also check out all the other work that has been going on. The History en Vilo series has been terrific. Uh, and a lot of the other stuff that has been going on over the course of the fall. You can catch up if you've missed any of that over at activehistory.ca. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear in the show, historyslam at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, I very much appreciate it. We'll be back with you again next week with another new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you.